Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic, the Prime Minister's Finance Minister has resigned and Christia Freeland installed. And shortly after the announcement of the change at the Finance Minister's position, the Prime Minister prorogued government. What does that mean in the middle of a pandemic? And we talk to a Confederacy chief in regard to the Caledonia land disputes. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The finance minister has resigned and Prime Minister Trudeau has shut down Parliament in the middle of a pandemic. I feel safer in my closet. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Come on out, boy. Come on. It's, it's okay. We'll be fine. Come on out, son. It's, honestly, there's no... Between that and the COVID-19 school year, the, you know, they're, they're all frightened. Relax, parents. It's, it's, it's fine. We'll get through this all. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson show on the air. Feel free to jump into as one there. Well, that's good. You know, I think Kurt scared everybody away. I'm sorry, Will. Oh, my goodness. What a lot has transpired in such a short period of time. Uh, let's play you some clips here. The first one, Mercedes Stevenson of uh, Global News on with Bill Kelly this morning, talking about the resignation of Finance Minister Bill Morneau. A lot of folks thought that Morneau could not continue on, that if they wanted to turn the page to put the We Charity away, they would have to find a way to deal with that. And we saw that in a very carefully choreographed press conference yesterday um, where Mr. Morneau insisted this was all about leaving because he didn't want to run in another election, even though we don't have an election anywhere on the horizon right now, um, and wanting to go be the Secretary General suddenly of the OECD. Um, obviously, there's a lot of context around the timing on a decision of a finance minister pulling his chute and jumping in the middle of a financial crisis in the country. Um, that's highly unusual, but obviously they felt that this was the, the best thing. It allowed Bill Morneau to step aside. Um, I don't think it will necessarily end the questions about the We Charity, but it will help to dull some of them that he stepped away. All right, and obviously since then, Christia Freeland has been pegged to take the finance minister's place. Here's what uh, Conservative MP Pierre Pauly have had to say about that. Ms. Freeland was the chair of the cabinet committee that approved the half-billion-dollar handout to the WE organization. That is the scandal in which we are involved today. For Freeland, higher taxes is a religion. She said, amen to higher taxes, and I quote. So it sounds like she's the same as the previous finance minister. Regardless, though, of how you play musical chairs, we still have the same corrupt and incompetent prime minister ahead of the same corrupt and chaotic government. Let's bring in Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation for Independent Business. He is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for having me. So uh, there's a lot of questions here now, Dan. What are your What are your thoughts on what's transpired in the last 24 hours? Well, look, uh, there's not a ton of love lost uh, between uh, Bill Morneau and CFIB, my organization. Um, he refused to meet with us during almost his entire tenure, most small businesses, of course, will remember the summer of 2017, where there was a giant tax fight, of which he was a large part. Um, so, you know, we're obviously, you know, there were a few positive developments over his tenure, but 
an awful lot of tax hikes and challenges in the working relationship between the independent businesses and, and the Minister of Finance. Um, are you, ex- are you expecting... We're, we're, no, go sorry, go ahead. We are uh, we're encouraged with uh, Chrystia Freeland's appointment into that role. Um, she is somebody that has had a track record of working with people with whom she doesn't always agree. Uh, certainly, if you can uh, work effectively with uh, Donald Trump, uh, then I, you know, working with independent businesses should be a cakewalk uh, for <laughs> for a minister. Uh, and we are hoping that she will reach out in in the early days of her tenure as Minister of Finance to find ways that we can continue to work with government on some of the emergency support programs for small business, and then looking forward, some of the important other files of which uh, the Department of Finance has a major role. How concerned is business that the government is prorogued through to October? You know that that is a big worry. What I'm, what my worst fear of all of this, both the change in in the uh, change in the midstream here during the pandemic and also progression of Parliament, is that some of the critical relief changes that are absolutely necessary right now may be stalled. Uh, right now, there, you know, the, the Bill Morneau, to his credit, did get the uh, changes through to the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. That's the 75% wage subsidy over the summer, declining over time, and, and that's now out till December. So that's good news. But there are more changes needed to the Canada Emergency Business Account. These are the $40,000 loans that businesses have been able to apply for. Many have been helped, but tens of thousands remain, unfortunately, cut out from these loans. And, and that's a change that uh, that is in progress. And if that gets slowed, that'll be really problematic for thousands and thousands of business owners. And I guess, you know, it could go either way with respect to the third major government support program, and that's the CECRA program, the Canada Emergency Rent Assistance Program. Uh, that's designed to give 75% rent relief to businesses with major losses, uh, especially those that have had to close their business during the worst of the pandemic. That's the program that Bill Morneau was kind of locked in, and, and it, it was a failing approach, and, uh, and perhaps with Minister Freeland that will change. But with Parliament proroguing, if there are legislative changes that are needed, that could be a real challenge. And there's big changes to EI in the works, um, big changes, of course, uh, to some of the some of the emergency support programs I, I mentioned, the CERB as well. We've got a bunch of business that needs to happen, and and uh, the political maneuvering that's happening right now is not particularly helpful when you're trying to manage through a crisis. Uh, the government says they uh, need to, re- uh, to regroup. Does this stall and regrouping help uh, business, or is, is, does this just delay? It's it's hard to it's hard to know. I mean, the one thing that uh, the prorogue parliament does is it it reduces some of the political accountability that I think is really critical for for us right now when we're spending billions of dollars designing programs in ten minutes. Uh, you know that 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 kind of scrutiny becomes even more important. Uh, and so proging Parliament does make it harder for the opposition to do its important job too. Uh, but look, there there are you know Minister Morneau was locked in with a few approaches, not particularly consultative. So perhaps with uh, the new minister in charge, we may be able to get make some progress on a few critical files. Uh, but proging Parliament doesn't help, and and I you know it's a kind of a mixed bag of of decisions over the last uh, twelve hours. Uh, that we're going to have to sort through over the weeks ahead. Dan Kelly has been with us, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation for Independent Business. Dan, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. 
Interesting question from Irwin, and we'll ask our next guest. In a minority government situation, can the opposition, if they have enough votes, refuse prorogation? Uh, perhaps we have someone that can answer that. Uh, let's bring in uh, Michael Tobe at this point. Trey Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you are too, Scott. So, Michael, let's start with first the question from uh, a listener. In a, in a minority government situation, can the opposition, if they have enough votes, refuse prorogation? Hmm. Well, let's put it this way. One, minority governments typically do not issue prorogation. It's very rare to prorogue Parliament. It's happened a few times in our history, but generally speaking, it's always come from either majority governments or there have been examples of minority governments, but very few of them, one of them actually being my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, who prorogued Parliament when he had a minority government in 2008. So the answer is that a minority government, majority government can call for the prorogation of Parliament, can it be refused by the opposition parties? That's a little more difficult overall. I think that unfor- the only person who can actually refuse it is not necessarily the opposition parties, but it could be Julie Payette, the governor general, who could actually oppose it if she wanted to. However, as we know, Julie Payette, even though she's been run over the proverbial bus a few times by this government, is an appointee of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So my guess is, irrespective of all the nonsense she's been facing lately, she probably won't want to get involved. So if the government wants to prorogue Parliament, generally speaking, there really is no way to stop it unless the governor general himself or herself, depending who's sitting in office, chooses to do so. So it looks like now this is prorogued until October. Uh, As a result of this, um, the WE scandal, committee meetings, uh, anything on COVID-19, um, uh, alterations that have to be uh, uh, made to policy and such, all of that's off the table now. Is that accurate? Right. Yep. Everything is off the, cha- off, the, off the table, and what the Liberals are mostly hoping for is that the We Charity scandal gets off the radar for a little while, too, because that's really why this is happening. So uh, give us your thoughts on what has transpired over the last uh, 12 to 24 hours. Again, uh, initially, this was the resignation of the finance minister, then who right. replaced the finance minister, and now prorogation. What are your thoughts on what's all happened? It's been really a swarm when you think about it. A lot of things occurred that, sure, there was speculation that maybe Bill Morneau would move into another cabinet position or do something else. That was talked about, but I don't think it was talked about very seriously, Scott. It was just, it's more political chatter than you expect from Ottawa here and there. When I was in Ottawa, I heard lots of it, and to be perfectly frank, most of it wasn't true, and nothing much has really changed since I left Ottawa back in 2009. It's all the same, and it always will be the same. But what we've seen here is basically a shift in a lot of different narratives, one of them being that Bill Morneau, who was the only finance minister Justin Trudeau had up until last night, is now gone. It's quite clear, and I think that really anybody who comes on and says otherwise, it it just sounds preposterous, and they really should be laughed right off the air, either being the radio airwaves or TV. If anyone suggests that actually that there was no disagreement or battles behind the scenes, or that this departure was nothing more than a ruse, because... As we know, Morneau said that not only is he leaving his cabinet post and leaving his parliamentary seat, he was going to suddenly run for the secretary general's position of the OECD. 
which I must say, no matter what you believe, is so far from a walk, it's ridiculous. It was obviously done to save face. You mean, you don't have to be in politics for as long as I have to understand that. It's just painfully obvious. It's also painfully obvious as well, Scott, because every political pundit from the left, right, and center last night was saying the same thing. And when a statement is uniform, it means that everybody who's there or who has served in some capacity up on Parliament Hill knows exactly what happened. So that was so part com- A. And Sorry, go ahead. You continue. B, obviously, is Christia Freeland now becoming basically the minister of everything. The only position she hasn't held right now, once she becomes finance minister later today, if we're to believe all the news reports that are out, the only position she hasn't technically held was the, is being prime minister, which... As some have suggested, more laughingly than anything else, she's been the de facto prime minister for almost a year. So I think what we're seeing is a complete shift in terms of Justin Trudeau's inner circle, people that he trusts, people that we thought were completely established and set in their positions. And now with the prorogation of parliament being reported by all the major news organizations, clearly Justin Trudeau is doing something that... Well, he claimed, and a lot of liberals claimed before him, that they would never, ever do because of Stephen Harper. For the record, ladies and gentlemen, any liberal who ever calls in, that no longer will hold water in a few hours' time. So thank you. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we were having this discussion a week or so ago because there was rumors flying around for a couple of weeks that Finance Minister Morneau was going to stand down, but that was due to the Wee scandal. Now he has effectively resigned, but it's not due to that. It's due to uh, their disagreements, meaning the Prime Minister and the the Finance Minister. And that includes uh, the doling out of COVID cash. Uh, We heard that Finance Minister Morneau wants to put more of a check on that. And also, uh, green projects coming forth. Is this the best way to get us out of this situation? So is there any validity to uh, the finance minister was questioning the COVID cash and was questioning uh, whether this is a time to transition an economy? (laughs) There's absolutely a lot of questions. It's complete nonsense. All right, that's a direct quote. Complete and utter nonsense. Yes, I'm sure they did have disagreements about deficit spending. Yes, I do agree that probably behind closed doors, maybe yesterday and maybe other days, they've been discussing it. And yes, it is quite possible that then-finance minister, now former finance minister, Bill Morneau, was frustrated by what he saw. All of that is probably true. But there is no way that any of this would have got started in the first place if it hadn't been for the We Charity scandal the fact that Mr. Morneau did not declare that he, you know, he received, you know, a free trip and other various things totaling $41,000 to go on behalf of WE to at a particular event, or the fact that his two, his two daughters worked for WE, one of them in one capacity and the other who had spoken at a few events. If those ties had been discussed right up front or if he had acknowledged or admitted them early on, probably a lot of the things that happened yesterday wouldn't have materialized. However, as we know with Bill Morneau, based on the fact that he completely forgot about a French villa that he had that he didn't tell the ethics commissioner initially. You know, I always forget about my French villa, Scott, yeah. don't you? We all <laughs> yeah. do. I mean, we all yeah. have French villas that we forget about. Because uh, of that, I think we knew that he wasn't really ethically sound to begin with. So maybe in the end, this is the right thing to do. So is Morneau any more guilty than the prime minister when, in regard to the Wee scandal? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think you always have to say that the leader of a country, of a party, etc., must take the large share of the blame or the, or the largest share of blame. 
which means that Justin Trudeau is more to blame than anybody else. But yes, Bill Morneau did on a smaller scale the same sort of things that Justin Trudeau did. He also, like Mr. Trudeau, did not recuse himself from the decision-making process that gave the contract to We Charity in the first place. So while maybe not at the same footing, he wasn't that far behind Mr. Trudeau. So yes, in a way, both of them did wrong. I think the prime minister did, you know, was far in the wor- you know, far worse than anything Mr. Morneau did. But certainly, Mr. Morneau is to blame for this too. So should you be shutting down a government, a parliament rather, uh, during a pandemic, especially when anxiety is as high as it is concerning the return of the school year and the return of parliament won't be till October? Well, that's a very fair comment. And the answer is, in theory, no, you should not. It also doesn't look very good that the finance minister who handles the day-to-day finances of this country is leaving 10 months after he was just re-elected to a seat, claiming that he already suddenly knew that he wasn't going to run again. You know, again, that's also part of the farcical nonsense that we saw yesterday. There was virtually, other than the fact that Mr. Morneau handled himself with dignity and didn't run the prime minister and his team under the bus, everything else that was said there was obviously just made up. It was just a script to follow to save face to some degree. But look, I mean, unfortunately, as, as we see with politics and we see with politicians, there's lots of things we capture <laughs> and we watch that either we don't understand or we don't like to see or we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. This is just yet another example of it. And, you know, no matter what, Bill Morneau has handled things poorly on his end. The prime minister has handled things very poorly at his end. And no, during a global pandemic, things like this should not be happening. There should be stability and structure in any sort of a government, in this case, our federal government in Ottawa, to ensure that the the right team is assembled and stays assembled to handle all the issues and problems that we face. The fact that there was a huge chink in the armor, and it was actually the finance minister who either takes the full blame or the brunt of it, in terms of the way the government is handling things, in other words, that being Mr. Morneau lay down and the proverbial bus rolled over him, or that there were obviously tension, or there was tension, between the Prime Minister and his then Finance Minister, which escalated, A, because of the We Charity scandal, and B, because of perhaps private problems or issues that they've had behind the scenes for the past few months, When you wrap everything to a neat little bow, no, this should never have happened during a global pandemic. And quite frankly, no matter when you prorogue Parliament or do something like this, it really shouldn't happen at all. It should be used in the rarest of circumstances. But unfortunately, it's become very easy for governments going forward to use it if they wish. Uh, Let's play a clip here of uh, Premier Doug Ford and what his thoughts were in regard to Christia Freeland. Does everybody love her? Let's listen to this. I want to congratulate my my friend, my good friend, Christia Freeland. Uh, she's just an amazing person. Actually, I texted her this morning to say congratulations. I, I don't know how she's going to do it. She's she's working around the clock now, and uh, she couldn't do finance, but there's no one that would be better in that role than uh, Christia. Can Christia Freeland save the day? Is is, uh, is she the answer here? Is she the, the silver bullet? I like the way you said that. Can she save the day? <laughs> Well, even though we obviously had the old Superman reels to to go through on episodes like that, um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, she'll be brought forward as a fresh start. 
as someone who certainly comes from the world of business and economics and finance and has an understanding of those issues. And obviously uh, a popular choice, Michael. Sorry? And obviously a popular choice. Well, popular choice certainly within her own caucus. I mean, Navdeep Baines' name was also being touted for a little while just because of his business background. I mean, I think most of us realized he wasn't going to get it, but there were a few other people they could have gone to. But Christia Freeland right now is sort of regarded as the quote-unquote minister of everything. She does virtually everything. As I said, she may even be the de facto prime minister behind the scenes. We just don't know it. But in, but in all seriousness, she holds a lot of prominent roles. She's going to be a finance minister. She's going to remain the deputy minister. She's involved in a lot of different files and a lot of different important files, too. She's a workhorse. There's no question about that. And obviously, the prime minister has a lot of faith in her abilities, and her caucus colleagues do, too. So can she save the day? No, I don't think anyone can save the sinking ship, quite frankly. Uh, but can she play a role whereas people will have more confidence or have a greater amount of confidence that things are at least more simpatico between what's happening in the prime minister's office and the finance minister's office and that they may be seeing more in line or walking more in lockstep with one another? Yes, I think that will certainly come to play. And I think that will probably give certain people more confidence whether it gives Bay Street more confidence or not is a completely different story. How does the rest of the country feel about this replacement of finance minister? I, again, popular figure, even Doug Ford spoke, spoke highly of her. How, how yeah. does the country feel? Well, yeah, it's interesting. As, as I believe it was Sue Delacorte of the Toronto Star wrote a few months ago, um, Christia Freeland and Doug Ford have bonded or did, started to bond during the time when they were dealing back and forth related to COVID-19. And I think they're on very good terms right now, and it seems to be genuine. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Christia Freeland has a lot of fans, um, mostly on the progressive side of the political spectrum, but some people who are right of center as well. Um, you know, in the end, ultimately, I think that a lot of people believe that Christia Freeland has basically been the brains behind this government for quite some time. So the fact that she's taking over one of the most senior roles in Parliament obviously will give people some security, some feeling of satisfaction, and maybe they'll be very happy with it overall. But I think that overall will it be regarded as a popular choice. I think that in some cases it will be, but in other cases it will almost be expected that there, no one is really that surprised that she's getting this role. And in terms of how Canadians view it, well, we have to be careful. Firstly, she hasn't been officially announced yet. That will happen shortly. And secondly, we'll have to see how people react over the coming weeks and months based on the fact that she's going to have a very difficult file, which is COVID-19. No finance minister in any country would necessarily want to have that sort of a file to deal with. But we'll see how she does with it. We'll see how it plays out. And we'll see if she can handle things better than her predecessor. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, uh, talking about so many things we never even got to the Governor General, Michael. Uh, thank you so much. We'll chat again. Be well. You bet. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Michael Morden, research director for the Samara Center for Democracy, a nonpartisan organization. He is with us now. Dr. Michael Morden, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. 
So are you concerned that uh, we've had a changing of a finance minister? I'm guessing not so much, but certainly the proroguing of government in the middle of a pandemic, especially when we're heading to September, which we all know is an anxious time for everyone. Yeah, I'm really waiting on uh, on the timing. I think the timing is critical. The thing with proroguing is uh, after, you know, you, you'll remember in 2008, there was a very controversial prorogation when Stephen Harper was prime minister. And since that time, we've looked at that word like it, you know, it means something inherently negative. And the reality is, it's it's a it's a normal part of it can be a normal part of a, of the life of a parliament. And you know, it's about sort of uh, resetting things and coming back with a throne speech with new priorities. And obviously, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense in a situation when the last throne speech was in 2019, which isn't a lot of time in going by the. Uh, calendar year, but you know we're, we're living in a different world. Um, so what it comes down to is when does the prorogation happen? And how long does it last? Uh, it, you know, it could be as short as a day if they wanted it to be, um, because you know, as you mentioned, uh, if it if it's a long term thing, if it you know it takes place over a month or whatever, that closes down all the committee work. Basically, the only thing that has been happening at Parliament is is the committees have been meeting. And they've been driving the scrutiny and, and uh, the study of um, the, the we issue and, and other aspects of the COVID-19 response. So if it's a long-term prorogation, that, that, that would be a big problem. Because that would put an end to the, the very minimal activity, the only minimal activity that we have seen in Ottawa since really since March. Uh, there, the, the rumors we're hearing now is this could go into October, which is obviously well after the school year starts. Uh, your concern, if it is till October? Yeah, I mean that could be a problem. Again, it depends on when pro- the prorogation starts. So, it, uh, unless the reporting has changed um, in the last half hour, or so it looks like that's a little ambiguous right now, is my understanding. Uh, it seems at least possible that they're thinking of a prorogation you know, in September sometimes. So say it's end of September and they come back early October. That in itself, not a huge deal because the committees could keep pressing the government, holding their feet to the fire between now and then. If it's happening soon and lasting until October, that's, I mean, that's kind of a disaster. And it comes on the tail of a long period where, you know, my view is we really should have had the House of Commons sitting through the summer. Even if that isn't typical, this is, these are atypical times. There are ways to make it happen, whether that was through remote, you know, online participation by the MPs or just having a small group of MPs in Ottawa. We, we haven't had that. We basically just had a few committees and an occasional sitting of the House of Commons. So there's been a long time now where there's been less parliament than there really should be. And, you know, if, if the prorogation comes soon and lasts a long time, then that would, um, would be adding insult to injury. Uh, obviously, education is a provincial responsibility. Uh, that being said, though, it certainly, uh, I would say, is, is, is one of the major issues uh, happening right now in regard to COVID-19 with September signaling the return to school. Is this a time where they should be in? As far as over and above what's happening with, you know, uh, the prime minister and, and his own uh, eternal affairs with his party and, and the, the, you know, whatever is going on, uh, September 
September is an incredibly, an incredibly anxious time for parents. We've certainly seen what's going on as school boards and teachers and and government try to make this all work. It, it, what signal does it send if, you know, they're not in Parliament when all of this is going down, even though that's a provincial responsibility? Yeah, no, I, I would like to see, um, you know, I, I would like to see the reassurance of even just governments at both levels having to answer questions about this. Uh, day in, day out. Like I've got a son who's starting junior kindergarten in, in a few weeks, and like every other parent in the in the country, I'm I'm hanging on every word I can extract from a press conference, whatever. Uh, I that problem to me is, you know, that's been a problem since the government basically decided not to try to make a, a summer sitting of, of the House of Commons work. Like I said, I, I think it was always feasible. Um, the technology was available back in, in May to, um, to move more of the work of Parliament online and actually empower members to, to vote remotely. Uh, even if you couldn't get agreement to do that, you could, you could have a group of 50, 60 odd members just based in Ottawa um, in order to enable a sitting and, and do the physical distancing and everything else. So there was always an option to have, um, to have the House of Commons sit through the summer. I think that's true at the provincial level, too. The Legislative Assembly could have sat uh, through the summer. And if there's ever a time for a summer sitting, it's, it's now. It's, it's when uh, the public is looking for reassurance and for information and when really inconsequential decisions are being made um, every day. And, and education is a provincial responsibility, but the feds are... are our actors, they're parties to this, too, in the sense that, you know, the, the federal government has provided some funding for a safe restart, which theoretically was, you know, supposed to have some role in how schools um, are returning. And so, yeah, no, uh, at both levels, I, I think it would have been useful for citizens to see their concerns reflected day in, day out. How big a gamble is this for the prime minister's government? Could this all backfire? Because as you mentioned, what's happening here is they're going to regroup. They're going to represent in a throne speech and either everybody votes yay or everybody votes and jumps in line, as you said, or votes nay. And we're into another election. So, again, uh, there's the, the prime minister is kind of calling the opposition's bluff here, are they not? Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. And probably some of the thinking is that the conservatives will have a brand new leader. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned the, the financial position that the federal parties are in. Nobody's in great shape to fight an election now. Maybe, maybe the liberals are in the strongest position. Uh, and that's that's probably reflected in, in this decision to uh, to take it to the brink if it comes to that. And that's part of the reason why I think ultimately... And I hate to pr- predict, but I, I wonder if the government won't be somewhat careful with this prorogation uh, so as not to you know, stir the hornet's nest a little bit. In other words, keep it short rather than uh, do it now and shut down all the committee work, which, you know, that could really blow up in, in, in their faces. I think, it, I mean, it's just a, it's a really bad look. Um, so it's either betting on the fact that Canadians are at the cottage and, and can't be bothered Um you know what we do, or or the plan is, uh, you know, let's let's play nice um, so that the opposition won't be given much of an incentive uh, to bring the government down come throne speech time. Because as you say, I mean, it's a it, it's an opportunity um, to really force the issue uh, with the opposition. Doctor Michael Morden has sort of uh, you know put up for a little while longer. 
Dr. Michael Morton has been with us, Research Director for the Samara Center for Democracy, a nonpartisan organization talking about how uh, the proroguing of government will affect COVID-19 and our reaction to it. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. If a federal election is called for this fall, can we handle this safely? Uh, to talk about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Todd Coleman, Ph.D. Assistant Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University, and he is with us now. Todd, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am. I hope you are, too. I am. Thank you. So your thoughts about an election, what are your thoughts on all of this, whether it's a provincial, a federal or what have you? Uh, what are your thoughts of where we are and in, in where we find government now with with switches in, in uh, the finance minister and then a prorogation? Yeah, it'll it'll be uh, pretty interesting to see, especially in the fall, if that's when uh, a national election is called in terms of where we are with the numbers of, of infections, uh, especially at the daily number, if we're if we're at the, the same trend that we are now, uh, could be fairly hopeful that there's not a large enough number that would cause any uh, concern for people to be able to go out and vote. So is this a good time or is there a good time? I don't think that there's ever going to be a, a very clear answer to that question, unfortunately. Um, we, we know from the fact that just a few cases can lead to uh, uh, dozens, if not hundreds of, of additional cases, that the precautions put in place need to be very, very uh, succinct, clear. Uh, people know what they do. Uh, they need to do to go out and vote safely, uh, wearing masks. Uh, sanitizing everything, all of that stuff. Uh, It's hard to say, uh, but uh, I'm hopeful that we've learned a lot of lessons over the last five, six months. Uh, It seemed for the longest time there over that five or six months, we saw a lot of love in the air, political stripes of all kinds coming together and such. Obviously, that is quickly fading as we come down the backside of the curve. Uh, Are politics, are you concerned politics is overriding uh, the reaction to a pandemic and safety? Yeah, ever ever since this started, um, the the balance between politics and actual scientific knowledge has been a bit of a back and forth. Unfortunately, we've seen uh, a number of, of sort of confusing messages from not only uh, uh, our provincial leaders, but at the national level that haven't really fully taken the science into account. Uh, to help control things. But I think now we seem to be at a little bit more of an understanding of what this disease looks like, how it's transmitted and so on, that uh, more of a, a sound sort of thinking between politics and science seems to, to be making sense. There's still some exceptions, of course. Are you concerned that Parliament isn't sitting now, prorogued uh, until September or October? Uh, are you concerned that, that that no one is in the House now as we head into this very anxious time of back to school? Yeah, I think that's one of the key the key things to consider here is that we're we're heading into a time where there is potential. It's not a guarantee of uh, potentially uh, a spike in transmissions. Uh, with people going back to school uh, and with Parliament not in session, uh, I'd be concerned about the potential decision making that needs to be made, especially with parents who may need to 
forego, for example, uh, going to work, uh, people who need to be laid off again, uh, and additional uh, employment benefits that need to be rolled out uh, from the, the country. Do you think uh, we all certainly know what we've had to all literally go through during this pandemic? There's a lot of fatigue. A lot of people are tired of this. Do you think uh, this is resonating with Canadians? Do you think Canadians uh, have the patience for an election during a pandemic? Is, is, this, is this a government? Is this government or politicians trying to help? Or is this a government and politicians taking advantage of a situation in order to, uh, I, I guess, clarify their mandate? Yeah, that's it's tough. We're we're in a period of of stress as a population that I don't think we've seen in in a really 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 long time. And I think this will be a unique situation to see how people react to this. Uh, whether there's more engagement in the political process as a result of being able to uh, uh, understand. We've seen, for example, the prime minister uh, almost every day uh, giving news conferences. So. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how how this tension between uh, people's stress and and what's happening politically will manifest itself. All right, getting back to an election itself, Todd, what would this look like? And that you know, since we're we're talking, there's obviously more chance of a federal election than anything here at this point, unless you're in in New Brunswick. But what would that look like? How would protocol have to change in order to conduct a successful federal election at this time? I'm thinking that uh, in terms of, uh, especially with polling stations and things like that, uh, that it'll likely look similar to some of the measures that we've seen, uh, for example, going shopping, where uh, there's extra staff who help maintain people's social distancing. Uh, There's extra uh, masks on hand available for people. Uh, if they don't bring one already, uh, hand sanitizers, uh, making sure that everything is much more orderly than it typically is. Um, I'm not saying that they weren't before, but uh, there's just this extra added layer of protection that needs to go into something like this, especially on a national scale. That could mean uh, really a lot of extra resources. So, uh, as as someone in the health sciences, would you rather have an election or rather not right now? Uh, I'd rather not, personally. Uh, like I said before, uh, we're we're all anxious about just going to the grocery store, let alone going to stand in line uh, with a bunch of people we don't know. Dr. Todd Coleman has been with us, PhD Assistant Professor of Health Sciences, Wilfrid Laurier University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, we were talking about the situation in Caledonia. The land dispute continues. We heard from Haldeman Mayor Ken Hewitt yesterday uh, talking about his position and where things had stand. Uh, this time, let's bring in Chief Cleveland Thomas of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Chief's Council, he is with us now. Chief, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hello, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. So, Chief, let's uh, let's go back to the beginning of all of this. Uh, obviously, this started a, a while ago in regard to this uh, this latest development. Where are we now with this? Where are we now with any sort of negotiation? What's happening on site? Um, as far as I know, 
the Chiefs Council is going to release a statement and that we are hopeful for peaceful resolution of the land issues. So we have been for for a long time and and uh we want to see that um land issues are resolved uh as best we can because it's all of our communities, our surrounding communities as well that are affected by by the dispute of, of ownership of the land or the um the surrenders or um all the things that we've been we have talked about since 2006 with the uh, federal and provincial government so currently that's the situation and um we're still um as far as we know we've heard um different things that there is going to be contact from the province and or the federal government we're not too sure uh anything official has come through yet so we're still uh waiting to hear that so has any progress been made at all, Chief, since Douglas Creek, since this all happened initially started back in 2006? Obviously, that was temporarily resolved and, and things settled down for a bit. Has there been any progress from the federal government on any of this? Um, I'm not too sure. Uh, like I said, with uh, back in 2006, what the issue was raised then, it's basically... Um, the same issue being raised again is, uh, the, you know, if, if the if the fed, federal government and the provincial government um, can show that they that they have uh, acquired those lands um, legally or if there's documentation and and for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy side, the ones that they had delegated to do the negotiating, um, they did go so far and and as far as I know that um from those negotiators that it was the feds that had um walked away from the table at the time so it still is in limbo um with the uh douglas creek estates and also with this parcel of land as well so if, if there's this disagreement and i understand the elected band council agreed to this uh which is why i guess the development started why is this happening now and not earlier on in this development before it all gets started um well, I think that uh, for the for the community itself, and uh, I actually wanted to touch on that this morning. We had um, I've heard that uh, the band council chief uh, Mark Hill's fire was, or there was a house fire, and first of all, uh, the chief's uh, council is. Um, is adamant that we do not condone any violence and uh, in um, internally or externally and to remain peaceful and have that peaceful resolution. It's not something um, within our laws that anyone should be in fear of, of uh, fire. If it's, if it is arson or if it, uh, the investigation is ongoing as far as I've heard, but uh, we are glad that no one was hurt in this fire this morning. We're not sure um what is the reasoning or what has happened that is being investigated as far as i know and that we do not condone any violence within our within our community so i'm so, sorry chief sorry so, to interrupt here chief so yep. can you tell, tell us a few more details about this fire what happened what are you speaking of um as far as i know um chief mark hill's um house was um was on fire this morning at 9 a.m and they got him out safely 
So that's what I wanted to speak on that, first of all, because there is no, um, the Chiefs did not con- um, support any kind of violence in our community, and we want to make that clear right off the bat. Um, so as far as um, interior in internally, that is what is our um, our issues is um, that we we know that there was a, um, an agreement signed and by the band council and we have asked for um, the chiefs council to be um, consulted as they are the rights holders for the Haudenosaunee. So um, I'm not too sure if you have have that statement on hand, but it does um, it does put that in the in there as well. So we have uh, basically two separate issues here in the sense of one is the land claims that have been ongoing and need to be addressed. The second is the fact that the elected bound council has agreed to this, but the Confederacy chief council has not. So uh, obviously the feds have to get moving on these and and get this settled because it's not going anywhere if they don't but what about the situation and and many have talked about how there's two different groups that represent the indigenous community um is there a way because obviously the elected band council approved this uh mark hill head of that in, in your scenario um how how do these two groups come to a consensus about how they want to move forward how the community wants to move forward yeah, that's that's an internal issue that we've been dealing with as well. Um, and actually, just to make a note on that, uh, Mark was um, when the deal. I believe um, the deal that they signed with the developer was uh, last year or the year before. I'm not too sure. And for us, we just uh, we we it really is an internal issue. I I believe, and it is one that I don't think we're going to solve overnight. At the same time, we look at what has happened in the West yeah, with the um, with the with the different um, band councils and and hereditary chiefs that we've seen. Um, the feds actually um, go to the negotiating table and and get a memorandum of understanding, as far as we know. So we would um, for our council, we would like that same acknowledgement or that same. Um, level of respect to sit down and, and let's talk about this issue that still hasn't been resolved since 2006. So um, a lot of our people are frustrated and um, that we are trying our best on our side to de-escalate the situation and working with our liaisons to to the to the um, Ontario Provincial Police and we're trying to make sure that everything stays peaceful. That is. Um, our number one concern at this moment. So, looking at what has been uh, been done in, you know, recently, we can look at that and hopefully um, we can find peaceful resolution instead of um, this ongoing um, not really understanding um, till it gets to this point where we can have a resolution to the land issues that surround us. Is there uh, is there a want between the Confederacy chiefs and the elected councils? I'm sure there is to get together because many have many have whether it's a pipeline issue or a land issue or what have you across the country. Many elected band councils work well with Confederacy chiefs and then come up with their whatever decision they want. Uh, do both sides are, are both sides working towards this or is it one against the other? It's a lot of internal issues there. Um, 
And I think that there is, and we have talked about on our side to to set all those things aside and 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 sit down with the with the band to talk about um, talk about this specific issue and how um, they made uh, a deal with the developer, so that a lot of people don't feel was supported by the community. And so we're still discussing whether on the hereditary chief side, um, if that can happen and when and when that would happen as well. <clears throat> so obviously this has come uh, become more and more uh on the minds of canadians i i think the majority of canadians want this stuff settled want the feds to go in and 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 settle these scenarios uh simply because they slow progress for both sides whether it's a development or a pipeline or this that or the other um and and, and i'm going to play devil's advocate here chief and 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 again I, I i'm admitting and and agreeing and supporting you in the sense that the feds need to get down here and settle this stuff. On the other hand, how can a government uh, agree or settle a land claim if there isn't one voice within the indigenous community to help that? Because one may come up with a solution for one and then not the other, and, and here we go around again. Yeah, and it, it's hard because, as you know, with even with Canadian politics or American politics or anybody, you're never going to have a majority... You're never going to have a. Yeah. You're always going to have two sides or three sides or four sides of of the coin here, and that support can be there. And when it comes down to it, who is the title holder to discuss these issues and where that lies, and um, where is the supporting factor? Um, because we are still one people. We still are. Um, you know, we still are neighbors. It's not like we're uh, bank council over there and Confederacy on one side. It's not like that. And we ha- and you're right. We do have to find a way to work together, and we have to find a way to to resolve our internal issues. And there's a lot because of the um, different divisions that we've had throughout the years, and the effects of everything that our people have gone through are tremendous. But I also, at the same time, want to say when uh, the conservatives are in Canada and you don't agree with what they're doing, and it's tough because you don't you can't always rely on that. As, um, but I think when it gets back to the land issue that everybody supports and the hard part for us is that we're, our people are seeing that we're starting to get um, blocked in, if you will, by the surrounding communities and that they're asking as well, like, where are we going to be able to grow? Where are, where are our kids, our grandkids, our, our, our people as uh, Haudenosaunee people, how are we going to, to be able to prosper and to continue doing what we're doing? The the development that is is in question right now. Uh, a lot of my friends are hunters, and they've said that's one of their, their prime areas for for hunting for our traditional for our traditional uh, foods and our our basically our rights. So as the encroachment keeps coming on, that's what our people are asking: like, what do we have, and and when can we come as one and be on the same page to address these issues? And who is the one that should be there? And for a lot of people, they refer to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy as the as the lead on that, as they are the ones that hold those rights. And um, for me, that's what is hard is, yes, we do have division and we do have a lot of issues in, internally and we're not going to solve those overnight. But at the same time, we need we do need the support of everyone to move forward as well internally and also to have the feds uh, come and get a peaceful resolution to this to this issue.
in coming to a solution to this, um, will this be a one size fit all that you can say, hey, okay, this is what we've decided, this is how uh, we want to be represented, or would that be different within each community across the country, depending on what their views are on either uh, elected band council or the Confederacy Chief Council? Right. Yeah. So um, it is, it, and there are instances, and I've heard of them. And it was actually uh, from a mediator at one time that had said to us that this is working over here. Why aren't you doing something like that? Is that something you guys would want to do? And to us, it was, you know, we didn't even know about if there was a working relationship between, I think it was uh, actually three sides of the coin was the, was the elected system, uh, the Bank Council Canadian elected system, the American system, and then the Haudenosaunee uh, Chiefs Council in that particular area. And that was news to us. So it, it's tough because um, I have sat in those meetings. I have I have sat in and seen the the frustrations and and uh, the anger on both sides. I would say it's not. Um, it's, but there are common goals that, and there's common things that that we could come together on. And when we focus on those, it, it could actually push towards that res- resolution in interior. Um, on the other hand, and again, just throwing it out there, is that as uh, Aboriginal community or Haudenosaunee community, um, we don't look at Canada and say, you know, like get the Liberals and the Conservatives to work together. Don't get them to agree on something. Like that's not mm. that's not our that's not on us. So yeah. at the same time, that that's a token that that we that we accept that that's interior, and also that there's not really going to be um, anyone outside of of, of Haudenosaunee uh, territory that's going to be able to, you know, um, tell us that we have to do that before before they'll talk to us. And, that, and I think a lot of that stalled the negotiations. But again, we're not, you know, we're still looking at that. How do we peacefully resolute, have a resolution to these land issues and, and the surrounding area, but also in other um, areas that, that the Haudenosaunee are present in and, and as a as a whole, um, because this is not Six Nations is not the only territory. We have a lot of territories, and when they come together and we talk about those issues um, as collective communities, it's another story. And it's always the same thing: is you know we we do need to assert our land rights, and how does that look? Uh, so has this dispute that's going this latest dispute that's going on in Caledonia now over this latest ha- uh, housing development has this brought? any of the sides together, whether it's the federal government and solving any of these uh, land issues or within the community itself between the elected band council uh, and, and the hereditary chiefs. Is, is, is this a turning point in any way where we're seeing, uh, you know, especially the community come together with one voice that can then present to the government uh, on, uh, on the land claims? I Will we see that see come that out of this, do you think, yeah. Chief? I I can't predict the future, obviously, but I mean, for me, uh, that's my hope is that we do see, um, you know, we do see a lot of the development going on, and a lot of our people, any any of our, any and all of our people have spoken up and said, no, we do not want that. We do not want um, further encroachment, and we do want those land issues um, resolved because it's our kids and it's our grandkids, and again, looking at at all of. Uh, the ones coming after us, what is going to be uh, left for us if we're just basically blocked right in? And hopefully the 
it does bring everybody together and that's what i mean i can hope for that but at the same time that um i see that there are points that everybody can agree on and even our neighbors in um, caledonia and hagersville and branford and all the surrounding little towns that that are around us i know that there's support as well for our cause and they're questioning and they're putting pressure and i would hope that they were putting pressure on their their federal government and the uh, provincial government to you know answer the call let's get to the negotiation table let's get let's start to settle this and and my hope is that we do become one in 2006 it was the same thing a lot of the um a lot of the same issues and uh for me that's 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 hoping at the same time i know that um there can be a lot of dissension and we have to work through that keeping the same goal in mind is um making sure that you know our land rights are being are being uh, acknowledged and and worked with where do you see this going in the short term in caledonia i mean obviously uh there are injunctions out there that that yep. uh that weren't removing uh any demonstration and such where do you see this going short term well i think that the injunctions do not help the situation at all um because our people do not um acknowledge that uh canadian court system over them so it's tough because they want the proper um people at the negotiating table to deal with us on that crown to crown crown or sony to sony to crown relationship and for me the injunctions um don't help at the same time we don't want to see anybody hurt peaceful resolution again i keep saying that but um we do everything on our side as well to make sure that it is peaceful and um, when there are things that are going on with the injunctions, we are looking at that. We are working with people to try to to um, work out, you know, the, it's a land issue. It's, it, it is, you know, the roads are being blocked. There's an injunction on that right now, but we're working on that interior, interiorly to try to resolve that and try to get back to that issue of, of land. So I see that hopefully um, working with, um, the situation that it is now, that it will de-escalate. And that's what we're always trying to do with our council is look at the bigger picture, look at our people, and hopefully nobody gets hurt. And that's what we don't want at all. We don't want anybody to get hurt. We know that the OPP have officers, they have families, they have, and I, and we don't we know that they don't want to, to escalate the situation either. So we hope and we, we ask for that time to be able to sit down with the proper uh, people that can negotiate at that level and also that everybody stays safe on both sides of this issue. Uh, we don't want to see anybody get hurt. And also within our own community, the divisions that we have, we don't want anyone to be hurt at all. Chief Cleveland Thomas has been with us, Haudenosaunee Confederacy Chiefs Council. Uh, Chief, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really do appreciate this, and I hope you'll join us again. Good luck. Oh, yeah, thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.